Robert Fisk died in October at age 74 after decades of reporting on the Middle East. Filmmaker Young Chang profiles Fisk in the documentary, This Is Not a Movie. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. One year before Robert Fisk died, I interviewed him and Young Chang at the Toronto International Film Festival, where This Is Not a Movie had its world premiere. The film follows Fisk from his home base in Beirut as he takes reporting trips to Syria and the West Bank. Fisk had an incomparable knowledge of the region that he poured into newspaper columns and books like Pity the Nation and The Great War for Civilization. In the film, Fisk describes his approach. I've got a very fortunate position in journalism in that I'm both a street reporter, I'm on the front line of wars, I see the war, but I'm also a columnist. Most columnists live in New York or London or Paris. Most reporters can't be columnists. What I've had the great good fortune of being is both at the same time. So when I write a series of articles about, say, Syria, I've just come from the Syrian front line. I'm not recording what someone said or reporting what I saw on YouTube. When I went up to Idlib province, all my colleagues were saying, Idlib battle about to begin. But in that whole trip, I didn't see another journalist. I didn't even see a Russian journalist. If you don't go to the scene and sniff it and talk to the people and see it with your own eyes, you cannot get near what the truth is. Young Chang is a Chinese-Canadian filmmaker best known for his films Up the Yangtze and China Heavyweight. Those topics wouldn't lead you to guess that he'd make a film about a Middle East correspondent. I started by asking Young what led him to Robert Fisk. I don't even know what I'm going to make next. Usually it's uh, sort of driven by my curiosity. And uh, uh, this one came about because, uh, well, a, a couple things. One of them was I had been working on a, an anthology documentary about the U.S. elections in 2016 called 11816, And I was in Vermont uh, filming a story about a guy named Boots Wardinsky, uh, leftist socialist and uh, off-the-grid type character. And uh, it, was, um, it was around 9 p.m. Boots said, ah, this election's over. You know, closed the, shut down the grid, and everyone went to sleep. And the next morning, uh, I woke up with a flurry of messages from my, my partner, who's a, a, an American, uh, and she was uh, eight months pregnant. And she was uh, just, you know, uncontrollably upset. I had no idea what was going on. It felt like, you know, I think for a lot of people, the, the, um, the election results with Trump winning was, was devastating for many people. And for me, it was drove right to the point of what the hell happened. And, uh, and so um, fast forward to, you know, uh, the National Film Board of Canada, who are the co-producers of the film, Anita Lee, the producer, uh, Nella Pazira, Alison Luchak, Ingmar Tross from Germany. You know, they got in touch and, um, and presented this idea about Robert Fisk. And uh, I knew of his work, had followed some of his work back in uh, post-September 11th time. Um, and, uh, and said, wow, this, this collides with, with um, you know, what is happening now. Let's make a film, and, and let's make a film about journalism. And, and this is what this movie is about. So, Robert, pe people had come to you, asked to make a film about you. Did you have apprehensions about a film being made? Um, no, I don't think I had apprehensions. I mean, I've 
I've done films before, you know, Al Jazeera and other people at quite some length, um, three hours with Channel 4, Discovery Channel. Um, I was interested to see, uh, to see Young, really, and see what kind of a guy he was. I knew, obviously, he, he was unfamiliar with the region, and I thought it would be very interesting to see what someone who doesn't know the region would actually make of it, and I thought it might be a distinct advantage as opposed to being a disadvantage. And the first time he came to Lebanon, he'd obviously done a lot of reading. He'd got it pretty right. And the best thing, and this sounds bad to some of your colleagues, is that he didn't come to tell me and people in Lebanon, for example, what he thought was going on. <laughs> listen. And it was great to find someone who actually asked serious questions after a few minutes he'd listen. And I listen to people all the time. And yet I thought, this guy, if his cameraman's the same, Duraid. Of course, Duraid is, is an Arab, he's an Iraqi, and I thought, thank God for that. This could be very interesting. What concerned me was the last big film I made. I had a very bad relationship with the director. Great guy, but terrible relationship. You wrote a column about it. Well, he was a dominating guy, and I thought, I don't think I could take a second version of this. And then I realized after, you know, we had dinner together in Beirut, I thought, this, this guy's all right. It'd be, it'd be good fun if we could make it enjoyable and fun to do, as opposed to, you know, a work that has to have deep philosophical background. If just, you know, and he said, you know, we want to follow you in your work. We won't interfere with it. And I thought, that sounds good. Well, if, if I can add, I mean, it, it speaks to Robert's character. You know, when, when I first came to meet you, I... Is this going to be good or bad? Or no, no, it, it's, it's fair, it's fair. I mean, you know, the, 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 his mammoth kind of credentials, uh, you know, the, the only Western journalist who've interviewed Osama bin Laden three times, you know. I came in, you know, and also just knowing what people, uh, you know, online, the kind of, you know, the world that circles you. And so I went into this wondering, you know, a little nervous, who is this guy? And, uh, and uh, yeah, that was good. And, you know, um, actually, he's, uh, you know, you're quite a humorous person. You're quite fun to be around. Then I was like, oh, this, this could work. We could spend a couple years making a movie together. And that's what it was. So that, that, that was the experience for me. I may mean, have to mention one daunting thing about this is just the, the amount of history that Robert has covered, the amount of different events, the complexity of any one country um, that, uh, that he's covered. His book, uh, The Great War for Civilization, you know, is about that thick. Um, and, um, and the next one, even thicker. And the next yeah. one is even thicker. And then that's not a joke. <laughs> in the film, there's a clip where he's where we're in the bookshop where you say you're on page 600 something. And now you're, and now fast forward to today, you're on page... 1,562. <laughs> Very readable books, I have to say. Uh, no, talk about the film. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you've covered a lot of tragedy, in the f uh, and the, the film uh, is covering tragedies that are still ongoing. One thing that struck me in the film, you, you say, you can't report tragedy if you're having a mental breakdown, mm. uh, meaning you've you know, had to professionally protect yourself, maybe keep it a, a Distance, or but I wanted to dig into that because, mm. um, because also I think that a person doesn't get to choose when they have a mental breakdown. When you take on board so much death yeah. uh, and 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 horror, um, I wonder how you feel like you've been able to. 
manage that? Well, I think, first of all, I think that covering a story like the Middle East is a bit like being a historian, but you see it with your own eyes. You don't have to go through the archives. Um, but I think possibly you slightly misread what I meant when I was talking like that. Um, what I meant was that some journalists I know, and very tragically one of them has committed suicide some years ago, have been so overwhelmed by what they've seen and what they've witnessed. Um, and this guy was a very um, uh, strong character that um, I think that if a journalist feels he can't take any more, well, he should leave. I mean, you can become the poetry correspondent, you can become the political editor, but don't think there's something manly about staying on in wars. Um, I have to admit, and maybe this sounds bad, I am not a very emotional person. I get very angry with you know, people who are responsible, and we include quite a number of Western leaders as well as the ones in the Middle East. Um, and I get angry when I see lies told about the Middle East, which are, you know, which are clearly lies, because I see what's happening with my own. Um, but that's the only emotion I really allow myself. I've got the privileged, privilege of watching history, cursed though that may be. And my job is not to start weeping uh, for the dead, it's to tell you about them and say who might be responsible. So I don't have nightmares. So I can go out to dinner after seeing something terrible because it's, I'm a professional journalist. Do you think you can decode anything more about your personality that, that allows, that protects you from every nightmare? Um, looking back and watching his film, actually, <laughs> I realized how important my dad was. Uh, my father um, was much older than my mother. He was born in 1899. And he was a soldier in the First World War. He was in the Third Battle of the Somme. And at the end of that war, he wanted to be a professional soldier in the British Empire. I mean, he wanted to join the Gurkhas. And he was ordered to shoot an Australian soldier who joined a British regiment and had drunkenly shot dead a British military policeman in Paris. And he said to me that he refused the order. He wouldn't shoot a fellow soldier. It didn't save the guy, by the way. He was shot. And when I look back at it now, I think, and I say in the film, we're talking about you see him in the film, and I said, you know, that was the best thing he ever did in his life. Uh, he refused the orders. He didn't go along with what he was told to do or say or report, if you see what I mean. Um, I think that probably had a lot to do with me. Mm. I think you show it um, in a way I didn't realize till I saw mm. um, the film. I want to ask about the, the balance between professional and personal in the film. There's a moment where Robert mentions that he's married to a journalist, but that's all we ever hear about uh, uh, about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I, you know, I wonder what you were hoping to achieve, and you know, what Robert wanted to let in or out. Sure. I mean, I can speak on that, and then I'm sure you can you can add to it. I mean, I think the point was. Uh, I think going into making the movie that it was it was going to be similar. I think one I took some inspiration from a film a few years ago, uh, Manufacturing Consent, by uh, about the film about Noam Chomsky by Mark Akbar and uh, Peter Wintonic, the great Peter Wintonic who passed uh, who died uh, not too long ago, and um, uh, and in that film there's a little bit of background biography about Noam Chomsky, but to be honest. You know, that wasn't the intention of the movie. The movie was a film essay, and what I wanted to do was make an essay about, about journalism and see it through the eyes of, of someone like Robert Fisk, who's been around, who's sort of a um, part of this, you know, lost generation of reporters uh, uh, in this new kind of world of, of, of how we engage with, with the media. And, and let's, 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 
let's listen and, and, uh, and you know, we can criticize, we can listen, we can, we can, we can consider what Robert thinks about journalism. And, and in that way, you know, that was sort of the intention of the movie. Not to get so uh, held up into the, the world of Robert's private life, which I can tell you, to be honest, if I can be honest, is quite boring. You read books. I go to concerts. You go to concerts. In you, 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 you don't really eat a lot, so like I don't know what that is. So, you know, we had a scene where he's. I smoke uh, cigars occasionally. You smoke, we had a, we had a scene where he's, um, you know, he has a balcony on the Corniche in his apartment in Beirut, and often you like to lie down and read the, a book, and uh, there's it's fun to film for a few minutes, but you know it's kind of boring after a while. So. Thanks a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But you're, you know, as a journalist, you, you, are, you guard, you have to protect your private life. It isn't just that. When I'm uh, working as a reporter in the Middle East, even back in Belfast, um, I might ask someone if they were married, if they had kids, but I always thought their private life is theirs. It was not me to drive an invading, invading tank into it and to make it part of something. If you're interested in a journalist's work, it's his work that you're interested in. So I never, in my professional career, have asked about anyone's private life, and I don't let them ask me. Mm -hmm. But I'll add that we did get a shot of you in your pajamas. And uh, that did was, you? yeah, and that is hard to do. Oh, damn it. And I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and it works. I regret the film altogether. <laughs> don't hate me for it. <laughs> um, Jan, you talked about uh, a theme in the film of how journalism is changing, and uh, one of the things that we've seen, especially in the Middle East, is a rise of citizen journalism. I think about a conflict like Syria, where uh, uh, Syrians themselves, in the absence of journalists being there, might take cell phone uh, video, post it. I think about the group Raqqa's being slaughtered silently that was featured in the film City of Ghosts. Of um, and, and Robert, in, in the film, uh, you make some observations about you know, this changing world of how we receive news. Um, and, and, and I think that my perception of that kind of citizen journalism of, look, we're getting these videos you know, straight from the heart of a conflict, mm -hmm. I've often tried to see the positive side to that as like, isn't it good that we've got this where a, where a journalist wasn't able to, uh, to bear witness? Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I feel in the film that you have a, 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 a different um, concern about, uh, about that, and I wonder if you could elaborate. Well, I think, um, you know, I, I think the technology is fascinating. If only we'd had um, cell phone pictures, film, movie film, of Sabra Shatila in 82, we would have learned a lot more about it. We'd have seen the dead when they were still alive. Um, and I, I, I like technology. After all, I'm looking at you with spectacles made by someone with a lens on, right? Um, but my concern about it is that when the journalist accepts, with only a slight uh, hesitation, we can't fully confirm this film, a constant stream of images, harrowing as they are and must be, without trying to go to the other side and saying, is there something we're not seeing? One of the problems I have in watching uh, by the way, I like the phrase citizen journalism. I'd like to join this myself. Mm -hmm. But because we're not there in Syria, for example, because journalists don't want to have their heads chopped off, um, I ask myself, why is it that in all those sequences of film, and I'm not 
I think most of them are correct. I think they're genuine. Not everyone, but most. Why don't we ever see armed men? Are they not there? I mean, do you mean, for example, that the Syrians and the Russians are not being shot at by anybody? Of course they're there. It's Nusra and it's ISIS and it's other groups. And it happened in eastern Aleppo. And um, what struck me when I was very briefly in Warsaw, and I went to the Warsaw Rising Museum, not the ghetto rising, but the Warsaw Rising, there was actual real film taken at the time showing children being killed, hospitals being attacked, exactly. But you also saw the brave Polish fighters on film looking at you. And they wanted to show their, 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 their flag, which of course is in black and white, but it's the red and white Polish flag. And you saw women and children who were helping the resistance against the SS, the Nazis. And someone said to me next to me, why don't we see that in these pictures coming from the Middle East? Where are the armed men? And then I started being very concerned that there was some kind of agreement between the armed groups, that the picture being presented, genuine enough, of course, was actually not going to include the armed groups because that would show that there were armed men in the streets. None of this forgives the Russians or the Syrians or Assad. But it started to move into a technological form of journalism that made me very concerned. Hmm. And it was that visit to Warsaw and seeing those, uh, those images, very powerful, you should see the film yourself, um, and suddenly realizing that there was something badly missing in the Syrian story. For me, there's another question, and, and, and that's something that I went into it, which was that uh, Robert is a foreign correspondent. The role of a foreign correspondent is to, uh, in a way, interpret and, and translate what you're witnessing as an eyewitness reporter First on the all, ground. First of go there if you can. Right, as a conveyor of truth, uh, you know, I don't know. You Always put that truth as you in wish. quotation marks when you're dealing with the press. Okay, so, truth. Uh, uh, as the conveyor of truth, you know, someone, like himself, is, has to kind of, kind of help us see what is going on. That's, the, for me, the, the role uh, of a foreign correspondent for the person who I am then opening the newspaper or clicking online to, to read the words of, and, and try to understand better what is happening. I can't look at a, uh, a video, um, uh, I can see the atrocities perhaps depicted in some of these videos, but I don't know what's going on. And that, that then speaks to some of the, you know, a sequence in our film um, about, um, about the Duma gas attack in April 2018, which I think was very important to sort of address in terms of how we interpret the news. And, uh, and certainly, um, uh, you know, I didn't grow up uh, with uh, instruction on media literacy. That wasn't our upbringing. Uh, we just read newspapers, mm. you know? Um, and, but now it's totally different, and I think uh, at your previous, with Alan Berliner, the previous filmmaker you interviewed, uh, similar themes of like how to deal with this world of fake news, so to speak. And, and, uh, and that's why I gravitated to trying to figure out that through your, um, through your experience, Robert. You know? I've never used the word fake news. It's an invention. Just did. <laughs> an invention of the White House, fake news, right? The truth, yeah. um, I think I was discussing it with Brent Sadler, a CNN reporter in Beirut, a couple of, he's no longer with CNN, a couple of months ago. And he said to me, what did we used to call fake news? A story that wasn't true. And we agreed that we used to call it made-up stories, yeah. which is very interesting. Fake news is a, is a White House invention, I believe. Mm -hmm. Made-up stories was, we would all know what it meant immediately. It was someone who's, you know, an extra gun fires, you know, an extra person dies, or whatever. Um, and I think that what's happened is that because of social media, 
because of the technology and digital technology and because of the fawning way in which journalists will um, look and behave before powerful presidents, well, Brazil, United States, uh, even in some degree a uh, British Prime Minister who also, like Mr Trump, should be in a mental institution, but that's not the point. The fact of the matter is that because they accept uh, this, there's become a new version of news which I find more and more I have to confront. And I'll give you a classic example. I will get a phone call from a radio station. I'm, you know, Detroit, actually, come to think of it, your hometown. My hometown. And the guy will ask me all these questions. It's clearly based on a State Department briefing, which has been put out as official sources from the New York Times, the Washington Post. It's, it's, it's the news. And now, more and more, I have to deconstruct the question and say, perhaps the question you might ask is this, in order to talk about what's happening. Because the world he's talking about does not exist in the place where I am, and it's meant to be where I am. And that is a new thing that's happened in the last few years. And it's because of social media, it's because of digital technology, it's because of websites and the net, so, you know, um, yeah. citizen journalism, call it what you like. And that's a very difficult thing, because not only are you trying to do your own job, which can be dangerous, you're fighting this massive curtain that billows over you of what you should be reporting. Robert, you talk about journalism being a lot of fun, and, uh, and I think for, for people who practice documentary, we wouldn't be in it if it wasn't. Um, but I have to think one thing that can't be fun about it is the being on the receiving end of attacks. And one of the attacks that you're, one is susceptible to when you're reporting the Middle East is an attack of being anti-Semitic. Uh, you know, we know there's real anti-Semitism in the world, but sometimes that the label's thrown around in, uh, in a reckless way. It is, yeah, um, absolutely. And, uh, and I wonder if you can reflect on the, 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 the potency of that particular accusation. Look, I think it's the most potent element of that accusation is Hitler and the Holocaust. The moment anyone can try to shame you or touch you by suggesting that you deny the Holocaust, you deny Hitler was evil, and now you are shamefully and disgustingly, and that's what it would be if one was, um, objecting to the state of Israel as if you're a Nazi. I mean, that's where it all fits together. And there are many people on the... Um, those people who claim outside Israel they support Israel, who will come along and say, ah, oh, you're anti-Semitic, Fisk is anti-Semitic. And I always say, and actually, this comes up in the film, I say, listen, there are plenty, plenty of real anti-Semites in this world, and we must all be against them. But don't you dare lie to me like that. I am not a racist. And that comes over very strongly, I think, in the film in which we see the same accusation being made, a dangerous man, and so on. Um, I think the danger for Israel, let's talk about Israel just for a second, is that I don't think that claim works anymore. I think a lot of people realize that, and, and you know, leading members of Jewish society in America, for example, you know, Noam Chomsky, realizes that when that claim is made bogusly, it gives credence to anti-Semites. And I think there are more and more real anti-Semites in the world. In Germany, for example, um, you can think of a well-known British historian who would fit that exactly. And that's where the danger lies, that when you misuse a label, the real enemy gets away. And that's why I say to people, don't you dare call me a racist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, you know, I haven't seen it, as I said, for a week ago. It comes over quite strongly, and I'm, I'm glad you went at it that way. You know?
Another aspect that, uh, uh, that can't be fun as a journalist is when you are putting yourselves in harm's way. And uh, I, a column that has always stayed with me of yours from December 2001, um, after the invasion of Afghanistan, and, uh, mm. and uh, you were uh, reporting on refugees on the move uh, from Afghanistan, and you wound up in a street skirmish where, as the Brit on, uh, on the scene, you became the point of attack, and you... Uh... It was an attack on, on myself. It was not a skirmish. Um, uh, some Afghans uh, saw me. One of them said I was Mr. Bush. That is, unfortunately, state of education in that village. And they started bashing stones into me, and I was very fortunate that it was actually a Muslim um, prelate who got me out of it. At one point, I was saying, you know, how long does it take to die? Um, um, but again... Um, and, you, and you wrote, yeah. I would have done just the same if I was in their shoes. Yeah, because what had happened is that most of their families had been killed in an American B-52 strike. And in my fury, if that had happened to me, I would have gone for Robert Fisk too. I got much criticised for saying that, including by a, a, a close associate of Israel and supporter of Israel, um, which he should never have done. Um, but you, you covered it quite well by just showing the picture and saying this is what you might go through. But mercifully, you know, I have not been badly hurt. That was the worst I've ever been hurt. And compared to that kind of thing and the dangers you do see, and your film shows the dangers very well, uh, I don't care what words people chuck at me. I have no interest in me at all. I mean, I mean I, and, I, and I went into it, uh, you know, having learned of the of the vitriol and, and even amongst your fellow foreign correspondents, you know, the things that people say, you have a lot of rumors around you, obviously, and, and, uh, and about who you are. The, and, and, and I think uh, that... No, I've been accused of working you know, for just about every secret service in the Middle East and the United States, <laughs> and that includes Israel, by the way. Yeah. Um, but you, you just have to say, forget it, I'm not interested. You, you, like everything on social media, you pour it into the waste bin from your laptop <laughs> and carry on working. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know whether you... Most other films I've been involved in wouldn't touch that element. Yeah. The fact that people, for political reasons, will claim that you're working for dictators, that you're paid money by the CIA, um, uh, by uh, Mossad, uh, by the Egyptian security services. I mean, why they would all collaborate in hiring me, I don't know, but... There's no point in trying to reply to it. And so my... You just chuck it out and you went... Yeah, and my Nobody else has, not even Al Jazeera. So the response to that vitriol was that I, I, as the eyewitness filmmaker making a film about you, was that uh, it was all bullshit, actually. A lot of that, all of it, because I was seeing somebody who was really guided by this, um, this journalistic integrity, your definition of journalism, you know, on the side of those who suffer. Well, it's actually not so much my definition, it's Amira Huss. Of course, Amira, yeah. Fine Israeli journalist who I've admired for many years, who's a personal friend of mine, and I went to talk to her, and she was happy for you to come along, and uh, I wanted to see what was her worst bit of the West Bank, where the Israeli wall is. And uh, she was the first person many years before you came along with your camera and your <laughs> directorial whip, and said to me that, I said, look, the journalists in the Middle East are the first uh, witnesses to history. And she said, no, they're not, Robert. Our job is to monitor the centers of power, especially when they go to war, and especially when it's on the basis of a lie. And I asked her, look, would, would she mind 
meeting, Young and Gerard. And then we would just chat normally, and you'd do your usual following along behind us. And I think that her account of her own life, she's the daughter of Holocaust survivors, um, and a very brave Holocaust mother who gave herself up to the Gestapo to prevent them massacring all her villagers in, in Bosnia. It was Bosnia again. Um, and she speaks very powerfully in front of the wall, and I think that's one of the most moving parts of the film. Um, and I think she, uh, she will be the person who most people will remember, not Bob or <laughs> anyone else who pops up in the, in the film. There's another quote I wrote down from uh, the film, and uh, you can correct me if I've taken this one out of context, but, um, but yes. you, you, you're talking about uh, the, the act of journalism, and you, and you say mostly it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference um, in no. uh, what the newspaper publishes in terms of it's, you know, is a scathing expose going to get uh, yeah. government the world to, to, yeah, is good. Um, the prison door doesn't open as far as, you know, whatever you write. Um, well, this Surely I there are times when you, you could point to uh, your reporting making a small difference or maybe a, a big difference. I can think of one, but it is uh, at least 20 years ago when I was able to prove with a videotape that an Israeli drone aircraft was filming the scene of a massacre. That possibly changed the results of the um, Israeli election that followed. It brought a more right-wing prime minister to power, so it wasn't a great victory for me. Um, but uh, I, I think where your film sort of almost promotes this problem is uh, when we go in the film, and it was, it, this is a scene where good filmmaking works. Um, I had found some documents in the basement of a bombed-out building in Aleppo, which had been used by the Nusra al-Qaeda group. These were effectively terrorists in the eyes of the West, of course, and in the eyes of a lot of other people. And they showed, they, by chance, they were left there. And there were documents connected to a mortar shipment which had left a factory in Bosnia. Now, they didn't go from Bosnia to Aleppo. There's a middleman that they must have been sent to the Islamist groups. And it had on it the name of the guy who signed it off in, in central Bosnia. So let me just pause here. If anyone's gotten lost in, the, in all the names yeah. here, yeah. essentially this is tracking weaponry. Yes. Um, I'm fascinated yeah. by who sends weapons to kill people. Yeah. So then off we go to Bosnia. We were with him. And following. amazingly, without disturbing the finding, I found the man and... Um, Duraid and Young just walked gently behind me, and you actually see him, knowing the cameras are there, saying, that's my signature. It was the Saudis we sent them to. Got it. And, and the great thing in the film is you see the discovery of how weapons reach the Middle East through a third party. In this case, the Saudis deny it, of course. Um, and I thought, well, NATO must take an interest in this. NATO wouldn't comment. The Saudis must surely admit, now we've got the documents, they said it was rubbish. Nothing happened. I went privately to a NATO office and I said, look, you better deal with this. This factory sent this off. And the private reply was, yeah, we know about it. That's my point, you see. Here was an exclusive story. My, you know, what you see is me writing for The Independent, not working for him. And you got it all on film and it's all there. And it didn't make a damn bit of difference. That's what I mean. After decade after decade of feeling putting your work and heart and, uh, and intellect into these things and, and feeling that it doesn't make a difference, 
How do you reckon with that? It's all in your film. <laughs> Look, one of the things I thought when I, I first saw the film in Beirut a week ago, on a little tiny screen, and I obviously asked myself, what did I think of it? Um, uh, my first I don't know what he thinks of it. No, my first reaction was, you know, God, it, how irritating Bob Fisk is. He waffles <laughs> on and on and on, you know. Um, but I did realize in it what a, what a great job it is to do. Because I saw my own enthusiasm right back in the days when I was in Belfast, which I wouldn't have thought your film would do, but you do. And you see me saying and thinking the same things 30 years ago. And I thought, what a lucky man I am to have this job. That's what the film said to me. I want to thank Young Chang for giving me this chance to talk to Robert Fisk. This is not a movie. It's now available to rent from Kim Stim Virtual Cinema. to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Mm-hmm.